I showed up. Nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening. <laughs> You're listening to Ain't Nobody Listening on Oman FM. I'm your host, Abdullah Al-Ma'wali. And with me today, we got uh, His Highness Sayyid Dr. Adham Al-Saeed, who is partner at the firm for business and economic consulting, the moderator of Tijara Talks and assistant professor of economics at Sultan Qaboos University. Thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Abdullah. Thank you very much for having me. Tijara Talks. Uh, I want to jump right into it. Uh, it. There are these sessions that have been happening for a few months now. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Well, Tijara Talks is basically the new old project, basically. It came from previous efforts of Ithra at the time, mm. several years ago, where uh, the authority back then responsible for promotion of investment had started engaging both internal and external stakeholders in Oman on various topical issues, forward-looking basically. What what do we see? What are the key trends around the world? What is happening? And experts are invited to have a discussion basically on their thoughts, but paying more attention to Oman and what's happening in terms of what was called back then inside stories. Mm-hmm. After 2020, that morphed into the Tijara talks, where again, the same emphasis is still there, promoting investment of uh, into Oman through looking at what is really happening on the ground and putting out examples of what startups are doing, what established businesses are doing, how business practices and investment practices are evolving in Oman in such a way as to kind of look forward to create the awareness, the preparedness mm-hmm. for businesses in Oman and those coming into Oman, that this business environment is both welcoming and there are very exciting things happening that are noteworthy, but also to encourage others to network through these events Mm. and kind of come and ask, how did you get that done? How did you succeed, for example, in exporting to a specific market? How did you green your processes? How do millennials look at the workplace today? What kind of work culture are we looking? So these are issues that kind of weave around the business environment and the investment environment in Oman. the ultimate goal was to really showcase what Oman is capable of and to obviously send a message to the outside world that you're welcome to Oman. This is what we're doing. It, you know, it's exciting. Do come and invest. So you mentioned a couple of the topics that uh, you cover in Tijara Talks. Uh, I think you've done six to seven different sessions so far Correct. since the beginning of the year. We've kind of had the Champions League kind of uh, year this year with so yeah. many different um <laughs> sort of sessions. Uh, It's quite intense. The team has been fantastic. Uh, I've been moderating these sessions Mm. myself, but involved in uh, sort of engaging the panelists once the panelists have been settled and and agreed to join us. It's the team that brings those panelists together, puts up all the notes, uh, so kudos to them. Um, And preparing, obviously, the logistics and the location and the PR as well. And those five to six sessions that we've done today as part of the bigger program focused on various issues. We looked at things like manufacturing and how manufacturing is changing in Oman, especially during uh, the pandemic, mm. because that's been a bit of a lull for the world for the last couple of years. And then we've looked at export markets, how to crack the export uh, market. We've looked at work culture, how COVID has changed that. And there was specific emphasis on Gen Zs and millennials and how they are interacting with all these changes, as well as looking at sustainability and the green transition. And the 
ultimately, we were looking at Omani companies and startups and businesses in various sectors and how they are interacting and how is this business environment evolving with changes in regulation, updates, and, the, and you know the economic challenges that we've seen uh, through the last few years as well. Very interesting stories. I've learned a lot from some of these speakers. I, I would love to know what uh, some of the things that you've learned in the process and who are some of these notable speakers that uh, at least that you remember? Because I'm sure every speaker would resonate to a different person depending on what they're into and what their interests are. All right, so I should warn you, I'm very bad with remembering names. Uh, me too, but, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but more recently, the ones we've been talking to is Talal Hassan from 44.01, which is a carbon capture or sequestering company. Mm. It's a startup and uh, it recently collaborated with certain companies in the UK and won a prize for a million dollars and have managed to capture carbon in rock form and inject it into specific rock formations in Oman, which are unique to our geography and uh, Could you geology. explain to me why? <laughs> why would you do that? Yeah. Obviously, you're well aware that climate change is, is, is uh, an accelerating concern. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, uh, the Paris Agreement had put some key goals on reducing emissions. The problem with reducing emissions is it takes very strict sort of... Um, uh, processes and, and, and actions. And mm. more recently, we've seen Oman has announced its net zero. Uh, His Majesty recently uh, sort of blessed the 2050 target for Oman to offset mm. our emissions in carbon dioxide, obviously. Now, what you do with carbon capture, as far as I understand it, is you're taking existing and new carbon emissions captured through various methods, either directly from air or from the source. Say you have a plant and this plant burns fossil fuels and that part of your emissions is CO2. That is either captured at source or captured from the air at some other location. Mm -hmm. That is then transported uh, in some form or another into the location where you inject it into the ground. Um, and that requires specific type of rocks that are available in that location which Oman has abundance of it. I think it's some type of lime rock, if I'm not mistaken. Once you've infused that into that, and it's well underground, it's not at the surface. Okay. It infuses and that rock absorbs the CO2. So you're effectively storing that CO2, which is a greenhouse gas, one of the key greenhouse gases. That technology is still, it's available, it's used around the world, but it's being applied in Oman at a gradual stage. And the idea for this company is to scale it up. Now, the same company also came up with a biodiesel solution in Oman, taking used cooking oil and in some way or the other uh, processing it. And it's introduced in a blend of diesel where the diesel itself oh, wow. now is combination of this biofuel and diesel. So you're reducing the percentage. And if I'm not mistaken, I've spoken to one of the uh, those who are working on the project, a company called Wakud. Um, and... It is, I believe, a 90% reduction in the full value chain of emissions from the collection to the processing to the delivery of the fuel in the emissions caused from, you know, picking the oil up from wherever you yeah. get it from until you get to that. Now, these are small efforts, but ones that will have important impact as we think of how we move towards a net zero in 2050 uh, and uh, greening our processes, mm. but also looking at solutions that are viable. Other people we've spoken to, people who come from um, uh, Sir Ray Charles, I believe, or Charles Ray, I always uh, get... Sir Charles Shaw. Shaw, yes. 
I'm thinking of the artist, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, Sir Charles has been instrumental in bringing UK companies into Oman and setting them up. A mm. uh, company, I believe, is called Bondoni, I think it yes, is. Yes, Bondoni. And their setup, basically, is to bring investors in mm. and set them up in Oman. And it is very exciting to see the sort of drive to make Oman a destination for those UK investments. Right. And he's had some very interesting insights in uh, the work culture during the pandemic and obviously post-pandemic where we were talking about some of those changes. Uh, he was joined uh, by uh, Shada Al-Maskari, I correct. believe, in that session. Correct. Yeah. And she's, uh, she's, she works heavily in HR consultancy mm-hmm. and she's brought in her insights and also with some of the efforts she's been working um, with uh, women empowerment and uh, bringing uh, more attention to that uh, topic as well. We've had uh, Fahar, Said Fahar Al-Sayed as well with us from Yozu. Uh, I think it's called agriculture, agriculture, where they work on organic Mm. farming. Um, And uh, him and his brothers have been developing solutions where they're uh, presenting in Oman quality gourmet products at reasonable prices, which are also organic. Missed that one. Yeah, yeah. So so I've asked him, where do we find it? And he said, you can find it anywhere from the big hypermarkets to some of the specialty ones as well. And they're very key to keep the seasonality going as well. So they're not all about just volume and different types, but they're very specific about their greens and others and that kind of value. I want to ask you, if you don't mind, because I've attended a few of these sessions. Now, the topics, they vary. There's a wide range of topics that all relate to the economy in one way or another um, and in business um, and leadership. I wonder how you prepare for these, because whenever I I attend these sessions, it doesn't seem like you're merely a presenter asking a set of questions. Well, I'm sure there there is you you've prepared questions, but how do you go about being well versed in these topics and understanding these topics? Is there anyone that is particularly challenged for you to wrap your head around? Because I'm thinking about it from my perspective. I won't understand all of this, you know. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And and I am not well-versed in any of those topics. Mm. I'm economist by training and um, professor as well in university, as well as, you know, I do a lot of other things. But yeah. I'm very blessed, lillahi alhamd, to be able to engage in so many different things uh, on the personal and professional level right. where I'm constantly learning. And if anything, Tijala Talks has been a learning platform for me. Again, I would like to give credit to the team from the Ministry of Commerce, Industry and Investment Promotion. They are doing much of the setup. But my pushback has always been, if I'm going to moderate these sessions, then I would like to design them with such a way that it works well with myself and the panelists. So we run through uh, a preparation session where some of those ideas by the ministry's team is put out. And those ideas are then discussed and then we see what every person is comfortable with. Um, in that way, in any discussion panel, Tijara Talks or any other discussion, you have to be prepared. You have to be comfortable that your panelists are never felt, they never feel awkward, mm-hmm. um, never feel misunderstood or misrepresented in any way, because usually people either come from representing their organizations right. in, in certain times, but they come with their personal opinions. So we're always aware this is not a platform for finger pointing. This is not a platform for criticism. We want people to be critical about, you know, the general flow and kind of why aren't we doing enough here or not. But we want to inform them mm. that 
this is what's happening on the ground. Are you aware that right. this is what's happening on the ground? And this push, say, for example, green hydrogen, we've had discussions about it in, in the last session with some very interesting people mm. that come from the Oman Hydrogen Center, that come from co companies that consult in this area. Hydrogen and, Development Oman? Uh, yeah, I think it's called Hydrogen Oman right now, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, they, okay, yeah, yeah, because the, the key role, uh, Dr. Firas Al-Abduwani yes. um, is, is one of the people also dude. is fantastic to talk to him as always so he started in oq renewables mm. uh, with the team there and then now he's in hydrogen oman which is working on the development aspect they're not going to be producing they're not going to be uh, the ones responsible uh, you know it's not a pdo or an mdo kind of scenario but they're going to be the key stakeholder engagement tool mm. that under the energy development oman company that is going to be concerned with hydrogen now that sort of the insights that Dr. Firas brings in, uh, or Mark Gleeson, uh, I always get his name wrong, so I always uh, apologize. Uh, yeah, he has for, a very Dutch uh, yeah, last name, as, which is hard for us exactly. to Exactly, and I've spoken to Mark before, he used to be the CEO of Saharport, mm. and um, now he's working in a consortium between Omani company, uh, an Omani company, I think it was a, uh, I think the Hind Bahwan Group and another Copenhagen uh, Institute. Infrastructure. Uh, something of the mm. sort that we were talking about. And he brings in the table a completely different perspective today. So it was exciting to be able to talk to him then. And, and recently we've had a chat with him yeah. as well. And uh, you can see the perspective of what's been brought on the table. I think I want to make that connection to the audience right sure, now. Sure, sure. So these sessions have been taking place for... Um, throughout this year. Unfortunately, though, if you missed it, you missed it, right? But you guys are working on something that would hopefully reach a much wider audience. And uh, do you mind telling us what that is? Uh, sure, sure. Um, well, you're involved in it, Abdullah. So, a little bit, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, so the, the pace of these sessions this year has been particularly fast. Usually what happened in the past with similar sessions was there were key reviews and reports that come out. Basically, mm. what has happened in the session? Um, arguably, we've been a bit lacking on the video side of things and putting out the recordings because Twitter was the main platform where this was broadcasted. That's about to change because Tijara Talk itself, it now has its own accounts on various mm -hmm. uh, social media outlets. Um, that's kind of the transformation of Tijara Talks to kind of bring itself to the 21st century, if you like. Um, but very quickly. I very quickly, yes, yes. <laughs> We've missed out the first two decades, but we're, the, we're, <laughs> we're there. So that element now is going to utilize whatever is available to us in outlets. And one of the outlets is going to be podcasts. Mm -hmm. I can't talk in specific details until the actual podcasts are out. But the idea now is to engage listeners uh, and viewers as well. This is a visual uh, one as we are doing it. As yeah, well, right? I, I think we can say that yeah, it's going yeah. to be a visual podcast yes, right. where all of these incredible people, uh, some of these incredible people that uh, that uh, say that Ham spoke about, will actually finally be able to to hear them, even if we missed the sessions. Absolutely, and yeah. what we look for in these podcasts um, is to highlight some of the key issues mm -hmm. um, in such a way as not to repeat ourselves, but to really you know, bring those issues back again to people's mind. And then, and, and, you know, whether it's the green transition or the work culture mm. or, uh, you know, the Gen Z kind of push towards what's next for them and what's upcoming. And 
the idea of these podcasts is to complement the sessions themselves mm-hmm. and in a way to transform the way we think about those discussions, keep them ongoing. And obviously the podcasts are more intimate in, the, in, the, in those discussions. Um, it, there's never enough time yeah. to ask all the questions. And, and what I have been pleased with, lillahi alhamd, is we've seen consistent number of people come to the sessions where the interest, and they're repeat offenders, if you like. Mm-hmm. I was pleasantly surprised when some of our students from SQU made an effort to attend some of those sessions. You know, these are evening sessions. Once you've had a long day at university. Yeah, you're done. There, you're, <laughs> you're done. No but it's midweek. <laughs> it's totally, I, I don't understand why it's always on a Wednesday, but, <laughs> but you know, but, uh, you know, arguably Mondays would be better. You know, you still have that energy, but... But having said that, we've always been lucky that, you know, the attention is there. It's we need to reach a wider audience and the podcasts are going to be, uh, I think, a stepping stone um, for for this. But yeah. again, you know, one could say, arguably say podcasts are forever, right? Once they're out there, they're out there. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is very critical. But the other thing is, um, it is engaging our panelists in more deeper discussions, right. kind of giving them the opportunity to reflect on their experiences. Again, this is all about stories in Oman that did you know kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And we need to put relevance. We hear a lot from the outside world. These podcasts and the sessions are going to allow people always to kind of dive deeper into. The other thing we're hoping that will come out before the uh, in the soon, inshallah, are sort of detailed discussion reports on what's been discussed, highlighting key issues. Mm-hmm. And, and those are kind of for those who love to read and get or delve deeper. So those are that are in, in the pipeline, as far as I'm told. I'm not involved in that process, obviously, um, but I look forward to seeing that, you know, the, the output of the podcasts as well as uh, the information sessions. I'm curious for you on a personal level. Um, what would you? What do you hope would come out of this? What's the ideal outcome? Right. The ideal outcome is to have that aha moment. Right for you to have a big question mark sitting right on top of your masar thinking, hang on, I didn't know that was an issue. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, we did a session on the silver economy. What's that? All right, so I asked the same question. Yeah. What's going on here? And, uh, you know, having read, you know, the layman, uh, it's old people's economy. Okay. All right, that was the impression. You know, old people, you know, they're, they're retired. They just need health care, full stop. If you provide that, you're fine. So much of that attention was there. But I was like, hang on, um, that's not going to work because people, as they come closer to a retirement age, whatever that age is in whichever country, Mm. they want to look for engagement, both economic and social and interactive in society. These people generally can spend more or these people generally have already fulfilled uh, if they've had kids, they've paid for their school fees and university fees. Um, you know, they're no longer committed or grounded necessarily with the typical things that middle age and younger people are grounded with or not. So the silver economy became kind of a tag for the opportunities that present themselves for that generation, which is, say, you know, just arguably above 60 or or, or 70 or 80. Mm. All right. And, and where does it, where do the opportunities come from? It could be travel. It could be health lifestyle rather than just thinking healthcare lifestyle it could be you know catering for their needs in terms of their taste their needs and their wants uh, this could range from anything from consumer products specifically designed for that group age uh, you know uh, if we we're going to talk generations we're talking you know like the 
baby boomers slash and what comes after. Sure. Uh, if one were to use that. So the, these kind of, in our societies, that is not even on the radar. You it's know? all young people. Exactly. But yeah. that is a big mistake because the 40-year-olds and the 50-year-olds, by 2040, those guys, bihawlillah, are going to be 60 and 70 years old. Mm. And if we, they were not preparing society for that, this is not about taking care of the elderly and having elderly homes. No, no, no. It's about them living a fulfilled life the way they want it, not the way society wishes. So having that discussion, that was an interesting panel because we had um, a lady from the uh, from Ireland, basically, running an institute that looks into all of these issues come through. Her name, unfortunately, does not come to mind at the moment. But that was an interesting panel because it was a one-to-one. So we had a deep dive into this silver economy. What does it mean? And why should we? And I, I asked, why should it matter to us? We're a young nation, you know, and... If we're not prepared for those eventualities, then we miss out. We are not taking it. Take it recently. Many people retired after 30 years service right. uh, in the public sector. Now, those people effectively are moving into that silver economy. They're looking for opportunities. Maybe they want to start up a very small business, or maybe they want to engage themselves in a, a side hustle, if you like, or yeah. no longer a side hustle, be the main hustle. But Again, we ask the questions, are we preparing our society for that? Are businesses prepared? Are startups prepared for that? Why do you use this as an example? This is some of the things that are so far reaching ahead of us that it's not on society's radar. We, you know, let's talk green transition. Right. Right. It's nice to talk about, but many of us don't register with it. You start yeah. your car in the morning, you complain at the cost of fuel and the traffic and whatever, but we never think that while we're on traffic, we are emitters, mm. right? When we buy our water bottles, we are, you know, eventually going to create refuse. We talk circular economy. What are our choices? I was at an event yesterday for social marketing where students were competing on creating campaigns with a social marketing perspective. So not just simply campaign with posters, but- But we're doing something good for society. A structured way. Yeah. Right? Right from the start, from planning it to executing it and then following through. And, you know, I was asked, what is the one thing you, behavior, what one behavior you'd like to change at least? And the first thing that came to my mind is consumer activism. And I asked the question, why aren't we as consumers demanding A, better products that are, better suited for our health and the environment, mm. right? We, we just take, you know, some things are more difficult to change. For example, the plastic bottle, right? The alternatives, you know, we don't have water filling stations. I can take my water bottle and fill it up. Right. That's a big ask right now. It can be changed though. So but you mean like uh, consumers who care about whether the product say is ethically sourced, for that's example? One, that's one, but closer to home, uh -huh. packaging. Okay. Right. How many products do you buy on a regular basis? That's overpackaged. Mm. Right. Why is it we accept to buy electronics without a charger plug? Mm. For example, because if, say, a product comes with its own charger plug and wire, I don't need to go to a third party. Right. Right. That means less waste and less demand that those guys, market demand and supply, will say what? If no one needs immediately. I'll need a replacement wire. I don't need to buy a wire. Mm -hmm. um, the packaging, food packaging sometimes, it's overdone. Way overdone. Right. And I've had boxes this big with a little burger this small. It's exactly. Like, you know. Exactly. And then 
arguably, we don't ask those questions. We don't demand, you know. I'll give you another example. How many times do we order on food deliveries for something worth less than the delivery of the order, you know, the petrol yeah. and the cost of delivery? I want a cup of coffee. Make it at home. Right. Right. I would love that mochiato slash Spanish latte from XYZ. Mm-hmm. That's all nice. But wait a minute, before you click on that button, it's become so easy for us to create waste and emissions. We don't need to be fanatical about it, but taking very small steps into changing, you know, whether you need to go for that drive, whether you need to change, you know, the way we as consumers change our behavior is by selecting what is suitable and what we think is. Sometimes we don't have alternatives, then we need to make our voice heard. Up to today, we still get people picking up, say, a very small piece of chocolate and hand it in a plastic bag. (laughs) That's true. And then you get asked, do you need a plastic bag after you've been, so you've handed me the plastic, can I give you the plastic bag back? This is, I feel like this is such a tiny psychological thing that would make a big difference. Before you hand the customer a plastic bag, just ask them if they want it. Most people will say, no, I'm okay. But once you're handed the plastic bag, you're, you'll take it. Right. And yeah. the same with receipts, right? Receipts are critically important. Mm-hmm. But have you seen the receipts and the pages and pages of receipt that tell you? <laughs> They're fantastic, but we have alternatives, mm. right? How do we manage that process over time that we don't need to? You buy something for one real, the paper that you use just to print your receipts, three, four pages, Unnecessary. I guess the question is then, how do we get people to care? How do we get customers to care? I'm not a behavioral scientist, Mm -hmm. but I always understand from what I read or hear, there are ways to nudge people. Mm -hmm. And those who are in the, you know, the behavioral economics and the social marketing and others would select nudges that A, make the behavior change easier. First of all, awareness about it, as far as I understand, and then making that change much easier. We buy certain capsules for coffee, right? Mm -hmm. And those are recyclable, made from aluminum. Now, we're a bit lazy to deliver it to where it needs to be because it's not that convenient. Mm -hmm. No one says, I will pick up those capsules from you. No. Alternatively, because there's a boom in this coffee business, there are those who make it from plastic. We go and buy the plastic. I personally, unfortunately, buy the plastic because it's closer to home. It's on my way. It's being sold. But hang on, that's not going to be recyclable. Mm. That's for sure not going to be recyclable, right? So I like the convenience of having a quick cup of coffee at home, but at the same time, my behavior isn't really aligned with where I should be, arguably, because it's more difficult for me. It is. It's less convenient. Exactly. And and I think when you talk to behavioralists and behavioral scientists, uh, they will tell you that there are certain steps to start from the A, awareness, to uh, giving tools and, and ways to make it we always make it sound difficult to create certain change that will have impact or the impact is so small we don't care hmm. um, you know, as much. And, and those are matters of perception, but I'll leave that to the experts, obviously. This is what I love about Tijara Talks. You saw the number of tangents we went on. Yes. Again, to remind the audience that Tijara Talks will be published on podcast form. So if you missed it, don't worry about it. Um, I've been very lucky and very grateful that I got the opportunity to produce the podcast. I've attended 
from the beginning of the year and to be given the opportunity to get this involved with it, it's such an honor. So I'm, I'm very proud of that. And um, I think by the time this episode airs, it should be out. Or if it's not out already, it will be out within the same week this episode Inshallah. airs. So that's Tijara Talks. Um, the accounts will be available on all social media. I'm doing it for you now. <laughs> hey, you know, the mystery will thank you for that very much. <laughs> uh, we're going to go out on a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about your firm called The Firm, as well as uh, some of the work that you do at uh, Sultan Qaboos University. Excellent. Thank you. We'll be right back. The Nation Station. 90.4 FM. And we're back. You're listening to Ain't Nobody Listening on Oman FM 90.4. With me in the studio is His Highness Sayyid Adham Al Saeed, partner at the firm for business and economic consulting, moderator of Tijara Talks, which we spoke about earlier, and assistant professor of economics at Sultan Qaboos University. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you for having me here. Thanks. We spoke about Tijara Talks, um, and if you missed that part, which I very much encourage you to listen to on our podcast, that's um, uh, Ain't Nobody Listening, available on all podcast platforms. Now we'll move on to The Firm. Could you tell me a little bit about that and when it started? Uh, where do I start? Um, the name, uh, in 2012, myself and some of my friends, who uh, incidentally we were all working at SQU at the time, so a bunch of young professors thought uh, we want to relate to the rest of the world mm. and get out of the ivory tower. And we decided basically to uh, gradually get engaged in consulting. And uh, those expectations were particularly high at the time. Mm. But we decided in 2012 to start up the business and see how we can you know, commit ourselves to it. So it was a side hustle at the start, if you like. Incidentally, when we tried to register the name The Firm, uh, that got a few raised eyebrows because uh, the system in Oman usually is that you have to Arabize the name. Mm. So, you know. What's the Arabic translation to well, The Firm? Do you know? It could be a sharika or al muassasa or, you know, the enterprises in oh, muassasa Very but, broad. Yeah. But mm. given that legal requirement, mm. we were faced immediately with a challenge. What do you call this? Because... The company has to have a tag. It's a consulting company, so it's a quote-unquote professional. So it's just like a law firm or a clinic or whatever. You have to call it clinic of so-and-so in right. the official name. Or so-and-so's uh, you know, legal advocacy firm. It has to, uh, it has to have that. The description. Exactly. Right. Which, you know... Or just Lil Tijara. <laughs> <laughs> the names that you can come up with with those restrictions are fantastic. Yeah. So when we came to register it in Arabic, it was a sharika, sharika to sharika, right? <laughs> so I was like, hang guys, can we just use the word the firm? But it's also a bit quirky to Arabize the name just by saying in Arabic, the firm. Right. It doesn't, it, it's not really becoming. The brand is the firm, but so eventually they agreed that, all right, you can have it as sharika to sharika. So the, meaning the firm for business and economic consulting. So that was resolved, thankfully, <laughs> several years ago. And Wait, so now in Arabic, it's a sharika sh- yes. to sharika. Sharika to sharika. Right. The first sharika is referring to, this is a company. Right. And the this second sharika is the firm. 
you know, translate it. So um, it took us a while to get over that, but it's always a fantastic story to have. It's mm. it's one of those little little things that when you start any idea, you get faced with how the system works. The quirks of the system. Exactly. Right. And arguably that was solved very quickly, you know, not, you know, but mm. uh, it's just a bit quirky. So when you're starting a business, yeah. always find a name that works well for you, right. but it also has a reasonably easy translation as well. I remember when I, st- when I tried to establish my uh, little business and uh, I went through a bunch of different names, rejected, rejected, rejected. I got so frustrated. I'm like, just make it my name. <laughs> so classic. That's, that's classic. Know, it's my know. name now. Yeah. <laughs> and and it works, but it, yeah. it also because the way the structure of companies works. If it's a normal company, as a, a one man or one woman company, or an LLC, or like a sole pr- proprietor, yeah. wow, which you can know, convert today to a one a single person company, so the I liability see. is limited. Mm. But the, the thing is, when it comes to creating um, what we call economic activities, as in, you know, you want to do, for example, uh, media, and then the next thing you want to do is, you know, sound systems, etc., etc. All of those fall under the same sort of mother company, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So you have to be mindful of that, and you can brand it if you want, but arguably all the documents have to have the name, you know, so your name will be there, yeah. you know, somewhere there, and then the logo will be there. And I was like, hang on, is this your name or is it your company's name? In case there's any confusion who the CEO is, it's right here. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and if you have any new partners and you don't want their name in, so you just add and co, right? That mm. solves a problem as well. Yeah. So anyhow, so the firm was established about 10 years ago. Uh, and much of the first several years, we were really building the brand and kind of, there's a lot of mistrust. Um, You're a university professor. You guys don't have any experience in the real world. Arguably, yes, at the start. Um, But we came with a know-how. We came with a mind open to learning. And obviously, you're competing with many other bigger firms. Right. So we had to revise our expectations and understand how are we going to tackle the sort of whatever project comes our way? Uh, How do you represent ourselves, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, for a while we decided, listen, we need to have very clear objectives. So we stuck to clear objectives where we looked at some research consultancy. So whichever organization is looking to explore an area either in in business or um, sort of economic consultancy. We did a bit of capacity building through uh, programs like finance for non-finance, where we educate people who are working, but they just need a little bit more knowledge. They're not finance or accountants, but they have to have that mindset. Um, we've worked a little bit on governance as well with organizations in the higher education and others who are looking to reorganize how the internal structures work mm. and uh, how to make sure that, for example, you know, in mid-sized or smaller companies, you have the right kind of relationship between the owners and those who work for them. Um, we've worked a lot with SMEs uh, in the first stint and the, where we did a bit of coaching and mentoring, but we also... Uh, we're blessed to be able to map the ecosystem in 2018 and again in 2021, where we were engaged with understanding what programs are out there. I see. And um, we've that kind of played an important role in, you know, getting to where we are today, because the connections with SMEs has always been with the bigger organizations and government organizations looking to support them. So you had kind of the best of the two worlds in the sense, with its struggles, obviously, where you're looking at these fresh startups and those who are just making their third, fourth year kind of 
cycle of existence. And then on the other hand, you had these large oil and gas companies and other companies that are looking to invest in these com uh, companies in terms of support, in terms of seeing them grow. And we've seen different programs that, you know, different type of companies, accelerators uh, that, you know, have come a long way today and they're making their impact in the market. So that was sort of a period where the firm was highly engaged in these programs, whether, you know, being involved, co-running some of these programs um, or assessing their impact and, and whether that works. And then we moved on to working with some companies in their CSR programs and social investment programs. And there we had, you know, we're grateful for the opportunity to be able to engage. Mm. Where we did a bit of project managing for those some of those programs, uh, which was a, a you know, fantastic learning experience because it comes with a lot of challenges, but it's always great to see those projects come to fruition. And then we, we engage in, in, in various organizations with specific requests that look at their needs. For example, if you look at uh, ministries that are have specific programs and they're looking for advisory or support um, in the economic part and the behavioral economic uh, part as well, something that uh, my dear friend, uh, say Dr. Mundar Boussaidi is working on see. Um, as well more recently. And basically we've evolved over time, over the last, we were very different from where we used to be. We're still a small firm. We're still, you know, driven by us really presenting. We've had the opportunity of working with international organizations who are doing studies in Oman where we supported them. Um, as a local subcontractor and that was a great opportunity to learn from them and you know uh, it's always nostalgic uh, perhaps not is. nostalgic but a complex to see how do these big organizations come to our countries and tell us we've done the study and this is what you need to do mm. that black box is very different when you're inside with a flashlight to it's like hang on all right <laughs> this looks kind of the same doesn't it you know yeah. <laughs> we can do this as well and that learning experience is fantastic because you tend to be critical but mindful of the local context. Right. But looking at these international organizations with their consultants and experts bringing in their experience, and it's always rewarding to see, oh, we didn't know that, or, oh, that's how it's done in Oman, or you correct some of those misconceptions. You know, I think uh, since you were in, uh, you've started the company since uh, 2012, that's quite a significant amount of time till today as 10 years. Um, have you noticed uh, trends on what organizations needed at the time versus what they need right now? Um, how are things uh, changing, evolving? Well, one of the things is because we've been on the sort of advisory consulting side, you see a different side of sometimes the competency gaps. Mm -hmm. By that I mean people, just having the right people in that organization to be able to provide those solutions. Generally, uh, organizations, private or public, go to consultants or seek advice when either they don't have the capacity to carry out something or they don't have the competency. It's not within their, it's not their core business, so they outsource it or they don't have the time, hmm. right? So the capacity in terms of people and, and time. And what we found is over time that some of the people in those organizations are beginning to look for local solutions that fit the bill. I see. Not just local because you're a many or it's not just that. That's a that's definitely value added from that sense. But if you're competent, 
and you know what you're doing and you're not overstretching yourself and you can deliver, those organizations will give you the chance. Mm. It's just the administrative hoops that are always challenging for a smaller organization like ours because of, you know, the sort of there's a lot of checks and balances in the process of hiring a consultant. Um, you know, and that process means that you have to run through it and you need to have that stamina to go through from the proposal to presenting to, and that's always been the challenge for smaller organizations is to develop that. But the other thing is they're willing to listen to us today mm -hmm. when we come in and say, listen, I'm not just a university professor here. I'm running my own consulting firm with a group of professionals. Right. And we have done some of these things before. We're aware of our capacity. You have to be. You can't overstretch yourself. Right. Uh, you can't, uh, you know, say, listen, I want to compete with so-and-so and so-and-so. That doesn't make sense in this business. You have to be well aware of that. But there's a lot of interaction in consulting. There's a lot of built-up social capital where people look at you and think you're trustworthy. You're going to deliver on what you say. And eventually you sometimes need to go beyond the call of duty, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, no puns intended. But the idea is that you're going beyond the commercial aspect of by that extra advice, that caveat on whatever it is, that input doesn't necessarily come always with people who conduct these you know, advisory services. It's I've presented, I'm done, here's a report, I'm off. Right. I think humanizing those services is critically important, small or large, if it's a small project or a large project. And and there's also the frustrations of dealing with organizations that are their expectations of you are extremely high, regardless of whom you are, maybe because another consultant met those expectations. But when you drill down to it, what it boils down to, what is the value added? And I think organizations, private or public, are more, the private sector is always savvy to those issues. They don't want to pay for what they don't get. Mm -hmm. Public organizations are learning by doing. And there are a lot of great people working there. It's just once they get to the, you know, they need to get to decision-making positions. And these doesn't mean the higher-ups. I'm talking about middle management and, and lower management who your advice affects what they do. Mm -hmm. And cascades right from the top to how they change their behavior. And those people are more exciting to work with because they're the ones who get their hands dirty with collecting the information, working, but you don't want them to be errand people and foot, to, you know, soldiers going back and forth. You want them to be able to do this right. once you're out of the scene. Yeah. And, and that has always been the sort of thirst to learn, especially the younger generation that has come through into some of the public institutions. They want to learn. Mm -hmm. They believe they can do it. But sometimes a bit of advisory, a bit of guidance is needed uh, just so that they don't waste their energy doing things they don't need to do. Yeah. And everybody knows we went through a whole global pandemic and that has changed a lot of things in the business landscape, media landscape as well, relevant to us here at the station. Um, have you noticed that what people um, are seeking from you has changed over the last couple of years? One of the things I think we've been working on more recently is alignment hmm. with Oman Vision 2040 and the current economic status in Oman or the, the sort of developments. And we're hearing more as we engage, whether it's NGOs or whether it is 
businesses that have social investment and CSR programs, mm-hmm. wanting to align themselves to that big picture. Right, and to the vision. Exactly, and, and that's a big ask to say, for example, how does your organization align itself to the big vision 20 years ahead? Well, we engage them, first of all, in understanding what the vision means and why is it important and, and uh, you know what's going on in the scene today. And then looking at what they have on the ground and aligning that. And the ask is sometimes not simply tell us what to do because we don't know, but it's more about fact-checking. Right, uh, and fact-checking getting, your assumptions. Exactly, yeah, and yeah. saying, listen, we know, we've been doing this for a long time. You guys are a third pair of eyes that's going to come in and tell us, are we on track? Is there any? And that openness to criticism mm-hmm. um, or sort of advice, um, constructive, is I think an eye opener because, you know, there are businesses that would think, listen, we've done this. We don't need your assistance. We don't need, you know, that sort of, uh, there's a bit of ego in it. You yep. know? And, and But we humble ourselves by saying, listen, we're here to learn about you and what you're doing. And, and if we can add that extra 1% mm. that's going to motivate your employees, your people to do better, to understand what's going on, then we have done our job. Mm. And it is that exciting role of learning and passing on knowledge and then receiving critique back and forth is something that I find very, very sort of enriching that companies are more open. Obviously, not all of them. We find that others are, are well set in their ways there. They have their fantastic group of people working and they do a great job. But generally, we all get consumed in what we do. Mm. And once in a while, we need someone to tell us, listen, uh, you're on the right track, but you just need to realign, readjust to whatever your objectives, the national vision and whatever is going on around you. So, so going a little broader outside of the firm, uh, the fact that you, you think about these things as part of uh, what you do, I would like to ask you on Vision 2040, um, is it important that companies align to the vision? Is it financially beneficial to be aligned by the vision? And what is your overall outlook of uh, Vision 2040? Right. So let's just put the vision in perspective for any listeners or viewers who are not fully aware of it. Mm -hmm. The vision is a general roadmap for a man for the next 20 years, starting from 21 to 2040. And the idea behind the vision is to set ambitious targets for a man, not only in the economy, but in the social aspect, in the environmental aspect, in the institutional aspect, the key four pillars Mm. for the vision. And those kind of targets that are set there as any vision are very broad. You know, we would like to increase the income per capita, the participation in the labor market, private sector participation, uh, safeguard the environment, improve institutional performance, uh, the judicial system, the um, improving the social welfare, the social protection. There are 12 key national priorities. And under them, there are many strategic goals. What do we want for health, universal health, or specialized, what do you want for education, so on. Hmm. Now, those drive much of the five-year planning that we have. Now we're in the 10th year or the 10th five-year plan since 1976, where we started our five-year planning, which was kind of medium term, where government would invest on infrastructure, developing programs in various social and economic aspects. Now we're at the stage where we're looking at how to get ourselves to 2040 by introducing um, the right 
program, it's the right type of investment. And investment doesn't simply mean structural and building new highways and whatnot. That's part of the overall development projects. But looking at, for example, the transition to e-government proper, e-government, mm. digitization and and uh, how to get the Omani economy to be more innovative. Now, with those objectives, there are certain initiatives such as uh, uh, accelerator programs such as Nesdaher, such as the economic diversification program that's recently launched, the Im- National Employment Program. The uh, Royal, Tawaz- a- Royal Academy is yeah. playing a role in that as Those well. Those yeah. are little sort of Lego pieces in the bigger picture. Mm. So if you take the example of the Royal Academy, yeah. one of its goal is to improve the quality of uh, the labor force in the public sector. That's its key role. Specifically in management. Exactly, yeah. because much of it is... So they have various programs that feed into that. Equivalently, on the private sector and the Ministry of Labor with other partners have introduced uh, three cycles ago, I believe, uh, the Atimad program right. right, for middle management. Then we remember if we had the CEO program as part of yeah. uh, the Diwan previously. Now, all of that has moved, obviously, to uh, the Royal Academy, whatever programs. Then we had the youth programs, uh, that were part of the D1 projects and then now are part of the uh, the youth center, which is under the umbrella of the Ministry of uh, Culture and uh, Youth and Sports. Yes. So many of these programs feed into the bigger picture of A, for example, improving institutional performance by improving employees in the public sector's performance. Uh, IJADA is another program to KPI or performance and appraisals. Um, when we look at innovation, for example, we're looking at the Innovation Center under the Ministry of uh, Higher Education. Um, research programs that come, the research endowments that come through the ministry, the competitive ones. We're talking about scholarships for specific areas um, that Oman is lacking in skills or talents. STEM programs at the university, uh, not the university, but the schooling system. Mm. Now we have the ongoing exhibition, the innovation, I believe, exhibition that the Ministry of Education is currently running until the 15th of the month. All of these are small little bits to improve, A, the capacity for innovation in Omani society, but then it needs to trickle down into businesses. This is where businesses need to align themselves and say, listen, I need talent. Mm -hmm. Where am I going to get this talent? I need to look first in Oman. If I'm going to hook up to these programs, I'm going to be able to get not only engineers that are engineers, but engineers that can manage new technology, engineers that can innovate, engineers that can R&D, engineers that can do things out of the box. Absolutely. If you're not aligned to that vision and you go with the same business model as you used to, eventually you'll find yourself either no one wants to work for you. Or you're left behind. Exactly. But that's a big mindset shift. Mm -hmm. We tell businesses, listen, a man is improving in certain aspects, but business complexity is still very low in Oman. We're still an importing country right? Um, that does not necessarily add value to the product. We are a service-based economy, primarily providing services for a small population of less than 5 million, so we're about 4.6, 4.7. Those are limiting factors. Our manufacturing is still fundamentally um, metals, chemicals, and, you know, not high-value products that we see coming from. It takes time to get there. It doesn't happen in a flash. But if you don't make the right investments, 
that's where, just to link back to our earlier talk about Tijara Talks, that's where we look at some of the examples where companies are making impact right. and are keeping up with the times and are investing in people. So one example is we uh, spoke to uh, the CEO, uh, Cynthia, from uh, Oman Cables. Now, Cynthia was a very interesting person to talk to because she was telling us about how they're investing in youth, Armani youth and women, to develop them into either to work for the company or enter into the labor market with the right skills and sets. Now, you'd think, why does a company like that, well-established and has its markets, and why is it going to invest in these things? Because they're well aware that the human capital investment is critical to add value to Oman, but also to the company. There is a benefit there. Now, if you expect the government to do all the human capital investment uh, in education, in training, and that is never going to fit your needs 100%. Yeah. This is what oil and gas did. They went ahead and created their own institutions that looks to feed into their requirements. This is what the banking industry did with the uh, College of Banking uh, and Financial Studies. They smartly thought, hang on, if we are going to build an industry of this size, whatever the size is, we need qualified people. Yes, there'll be graduates from other colleges, but we have a consortium of banks invested in this college with the central bank that is going to feed the industry with its needs. Now, the high omanization levels, for example, that you see, hmm. it's not the key metric, but it's one that one should be proud of, is very high in oil and gas and in Right. Uh, the financial services. And it's due to that. Highly, I would speculate, yeah. highly due to that. Uh, but also these industries are easier because the the value uh, in terms of wages, the, the value in terms of what it, it provides, especially oil and gas, is quite significantly high. Mm. Um, some would argue financial services add value to themselves, but not the overall economy, you know, as they are an enabling factor. Uh, but that's a different story for another day, perhaps. So, Again, aligning yourself to the vision is critical because that is what makes the vision happen. So I guess then the question is, um, or the question becomes, do we do we believe in the vision that it would happen? Who um, who are the decision makers when it comes to the vision, and how are how are these goals set up? And right. you 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 work in a consultancy, so you can look at this, you can analyze it. The regular person can't. So I would say, speak to the skeptical ones. Right. So for you to be, you know, I like the idea that you said, do you believe in it? Because any vision has to be believed. When His Majesty Sultan Qaboos Tayyab al in 1970, came with a vision to see Oman as a modern country. Mm. If he did not believe that was possible, we wouldn't be where we are today. Absolutely. And today, Sultan Haytham bin Tariq is leading the next phase in Oman's development, the next phase in Oman's sort of move towards being, uh, as, as the vision sees it, uh, in the sort of uh, advanced economies around the world. But his belief today, in many of his speeches, was in us, all of us, to deliver. Mm -hmm. When we came to the vision itself, right from about 2015, 2014, I was very fortunate to be one of the team that from the Sultan Qaboos University to present our ideas on what might a vision look like. There were other teams working from other institutions, but I was very fortunate to be part of our team from SQU. And we put out what we saw as key. And I must say, it isn't very different from what we see today in our vision in terms of 
the points of emphasis and how might you go about it? It's very interesting, if I may pause you here for Please, a second, yeah. the collaborative nature of how the vision came to be. Absolutely. I, I wasn't aware of that. There's a number, I, you know, the uh, in the booklet of 2040, which is available at the website uh, of the, uh, the follow-up unit for the Vision 2040 mm. implementation, um, I believe the number is about 41,000 people were engaged wow. from start to finish. How were they engaged? Earlier on, technical people were engaged just to put out on the table, what could potentially, how do we go about this? And then obviously there was... Uh, uh, some consultants that came on board to facilitate the process. But the Oman-wide engagement, town hall meetings, basically, um, with pretty much everyone you can think of, NGOs, including women's associations and other professional associations, uh, localities, youth, everywhere from Ascendum to the far. Hmm were engaged, the national priorities were distilled from everything that was brought out. Some things were very micro-based, some of them were more country-based kind of. Those, that distillation came up with a twin, sort of 12-point national priorities. These are the drivers of the vision. We want Oman to be this. We want to increase income per capita that. We would like for education to be, you know, X, Y, Z. And under that, there was a lot of discussion. Where do we go with this, right? So we have a priority on health, but what do we want for health? We want health to be, for example, universal, meaning the, to reach the maximum possible number of people or the percentage in the population. Right. We would like for us to have uh, sustainable cities. What does that mean? Smart cities? What is smart cities? And so it went from the very high level of national priority and it came down to strategic direction. Mm education is going to be innovative, we're going to have talented people. This could mean a lot of things. Yeah. But remember, this is at the 40,000 feet altitude. Right. Right? What it, is, so you exactly. have to ask yourself questions like, what does it mean to be innovative? Exactly. Like, yeah. So that cascades into those strategic goals. Mm. Now, there are a few KPIs there, about 68 of them. About half of them are local, and another half 68 is- 68 KPIs. KPIs. These are indicators like competitiveness, GDP per capita, educational performance in TIMS, uh, governance indices, um, growth in number of enrollments, for example. I don't remember all of them. There's just too many of them. Yeah. Now, those are still at the very high level. The five-year planning process with every five years picks out from that, say, in education, the Ministry of Education, higher and the Ministry of Education will put out their programs that fit into the vision. So, for example, they're no longer just building new schools and, and uh, no, 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 we're looking at, for example, we're going to accredit our colleges and universities. Why? Because I want to get to a level of quality in higher education. Who's responsible for that? The authority responsible for accreditation. Uh, once we reach that level, we're going to go to the next level, accredit the program specifically. Mm -hmm. So I've I've had the opportunity as a, a chair for two of the board of trustees uh, boards in two private colleges to go through that process. And I can tell you, it makes all the difference when people have to focus not only on educating people, but the quality of that education, the type of engagement and reaching that milestone of getting accredited both domestically and internationally makes a whole lot of difference for how you look at the quality of education and the output that you have. It isn't a perfect solution where we'll have just 
more talented people because we're accredited. Mm -hmm. But what we're doing is we're holding the higher educational system to account. You're getting some scholarships, you're getting people paying out of pocket. It is your responsibility to ensure they get quality education. Absolutely. But it's their responsibility as graduates to continue that path and pursue what's best for them and for their career. So all of that needs to fall under the bigger picture. It isn't government that is going to just drive the vision. If government wants to create an innovative society, it can't do that if society does not want to be engaged. Yeah. Right? If we want to be better, better use our resources of the environment, it isn't then, you know, from the simplest things as littering, the products that we use, the products that we demand, if businesses do not change their practices, how are we going to reach that goal? It's a combination of or a societal effort that is required. And this is where I answer the question to the skeptic. Why is it important? Why does it matter to me? If it's not you, it's the next generation. I was going to say your kids, but I'm sure your eyes would have went a bit wide. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we need to leave Oman as a better place for the next generation. Mm. And that means a better place to live in, better place to enjoy, a better place for opportunities. And that does not happen because government is just spending here or, you know, builds a new health center here. That's part of the story. Yeah. But it's not. It's what we do. You're in the creative arts right now. It's changing the content that meets a requirement of today to transition from what might be considered more traditional to something more dynamic. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say modern because modern has negative connotations as sure. well as positive. You have a different audience today. So how do you deliver? Today we're delivering it visual as well as, uh, you know, we're different modes. But the content of your programs here today needs to match. Let me ask a simple question. Hmm. Do you talk enough about sustainability in any form or shape? Not as much as we should. Right. And not sustainability hmm. environmental, sustainability hmm. financial, sustainability in lifestyle, in well-being. Right. Right. These are matters that do come up organically, but yeah. I would say not as much as we we should, for exactly. sure. Exactly. Yeah. And what we hear from external digital radio channels and others and, and podcasts and TED Talks, for example, mm. are issues that are never on our radar, but need to be, because in our vision, we're talking about the same issues. You know, I hear a lot of talk from people who are involved in smart cities, for example. Mm-hmm. How do we make our cities smarter? Right. Right. I don't have the faintest idea. Well, Dukum is trying to lead that path, and we're all looking at Dukum. But Dukum is what? Five hours away from here. We're living in Masqat. That's we're living true. in Salala. We're living in uh, sort of Khasab. We're living in Sur. Right. What does that concept mean to us? Right? Is it access to specific services? Is it how do we access those? We're still struggling as a society with hybrid work and hybrid learning. Yeah. Right? That's when you asked how there's a culture might change. I was, yeah, uh, you right? went ahead there. Right? Yeah. Uh, I tell my students at university, listen, next week I'm engaged in so many different engagements. I cannot be there, but your lectures are online and mm-hmm. they're available for you, right? That's not a fantastic jump to online learning, but I want them to be able to get used to the idea that learning does not stop because your professor is not there talking to you or engaging you. There are different modes of engagement. That, I think, is the way that we think about our vision is a transformation, and that's what it is. If we're waiting for someone to tell us what to do about the vision, that's a bit of a problem Mm. because we have very small roles to play, but come together, these come, you know, all together. We often, I guess, 
have these expectations that if it isn't a big splash, it's not worth making. Yeah, which is false. Yeah, right? The small little pebbles get left on the beach mm. or the, the bank of the river or whatever because they're not going to make a big splash. They're not going to be able to bounce as much. But that's one more pebble that you're adding to the pile that's already out there. And you never know what cascading effects that one pebble may have. Exactly. You and know, one person, say, slips on that pebble. <laughs> yeah, which is, which is not what we want, right? <laughs> but point being is you don't know what effect this True. small little action that you may have. I've, I've uh, witnessed throughout the years that sometimes big change happens from just one or two individuals. Butterfly effect. A butterfly effect. It could yeah. be as much as just an idea. You know, it might not seem significant at the time, but that idea grows and evolves into something. So absolutely. Um, so I guess going back to the skeptic, you know, I know that there's a lot of people out there who, are, who the last few years has made them jaded. You know, there's been some economic uh, difficulties, um, maybe salaries have not gone up, and sure. they just feel just jaded by everything. Things are tough for them. And then when you might talk to them about Vision 2040, they, they will immediately dismiss it. How do you convince that person? Or should, they, should we even bother trying to convince that person? I don't think it's about convincing because opinions and, and convictions are very difficult to shift. Mm. Uh, those of us who debate often will always realize, you know, you, you're talking to either the converted or to yourself. <laughs> Others won't change their mind, right? Yeah. Uh, sometimes I think to talk to someone who does not capture the full picture, not because they're unaware, they just choose not. I don't care. Mm. We're selfish beings. Even those who give, those who volunteer, we're still selfish beings. We're human beings. Of course. We do something that helps others, but rewards ourselves, mm -hmm. right? So the big picture for all of us, including myself, is not always easy to get your head around it. So you leave it for someone else to worry about. But why do we burden people by the discussion of a vision or a plan or whatever it is, if they're already struggling with certain things are closer to home? Mm -hmm. You know, putting food on the table, making sure that their, their children's uh, sort of uh, their obligations are met, whether it's schooling, health or whatever it is. We need to be mindful when we talk about these big issues, not just 2040, sustainability and silver economy, work culture. A lot of these things don't matter to many of us because either we don't care or we don't sense that it's close. Right. We need to understand that not everything on the grand scale necessarily affects me personally, but it affects my society. Which in turn affects yeah. you, but, but very indirectly. Exactly. Yeah. So climate change. We, we don't sit. Do, yeah. do you ever sit with your friends and say, oh my God, temperature's gone up by another 1% this year. It's too far away of a exactly. problem. Exactly. Yeah. But when we talk about 2.5% increase in the global temperature mm. in 2100, yeah. None of us are going to be alive in 2100. No, good luck, grandkids. Exactly. <laughs> so it's someone that. else's problem, <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. But when I find, as you said, my income isn't growing as fast as I'd like mm. at all. That's uh, very immediate. You know, it's, it's more immediate. So a vision of 20 years is not going to solve the problem today, mm -hmm. naturally. So you need to be, when you talk to people about strategy and you set out these beautiful goals, you need to drill down to what each individual can or can't do to achieve that bigger goal. So, you know, for people who are jaded, as you've described, 
one would always advise, although it's, it's a bit risky to give any advice and no one should be qualified to just go out and say that, is to stay the course and not give up on what you need to do. But you need to also work on alternatives wherever possible. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it isn't. it's easier for us to say that, but this is like talking to a startup who had extremely difficult last two years. Yeah, Some of them closed down, some of them have debt and they cannot repay it. It's not easy, but it isn't the end of the road. That's the key element. It isn't the end of the road. There's a part for society to play where it can assist people. You know, we talk about takaful in our, in our not the insurance takaful, but yeah. really Coming society. Coming together. Exactly. Mm. Helping each other. That's where our role could be. If we're talking about social protection in our economy, in our, in our society, it's not only government that provides social welfare and unemployment uh, benefits, part of the uh, job security fund or whatever it is. It's a society to help each other. Let's not talk too much about the vision without understanding also the troubles of people who are going through a hard time. But giving people hope through various different alternatives. For a startup business, His Majesty's uh, graceful decision to relieve those of debts and stop them from going to jail. There's about a thousand or so people. Mm. Psychologically, that is huge. That is saying that the state is willing to support you. But also we need to take two steps back and ask, how do we protect people who go through this experience? We've pushed hard, go out, start your business, do this and that. But there needs to be a protection net for those people. Yeah. All right. And I'm imagining that comes in the form of education or programs. And direct support, whether it's financial or protection from bankruptcy. Right, we have a bankruptcy law, but how does it apply to the smaller businesses? How does it apply to the sole proprietor? Right, right. How do we protect you? How do we provide you? So, yes, we say failure is a learning experience, but failure is an expensive experience. <laughs> it is. It's it could ex- be very. You know, very if it's just out of your savings, that's fine. But if you've borrowed money, yeah. if you're threatened by going to to jail yeah. if yeah. you don't repay, so we need to be mindful. I cannot talk to a person who is ill, mm. unwell. Uh, chronically ill about well-being and lifestyle and whatnot, they don't care. Mm. They want to have that magic pill that makes them feel better, right? That medication that is going to bring them to some sort of semblance of a normal life. So let's not talk out of context because that only makes people more bitter or, uh, you know, unhappy or just feel you're being condescending. Yeah. You know, and I think that is a challenge always. We talk so much about the big picture, but we forget sometimes a small picture matters more mm-hmm. to most of us. And, you know, less complaining and more doing if we can. You know, how can we do that? that that's, that's always a big question. Such a beautiful place to take a break here uh, with me is uh, His Highness Sayyid Adham Al Saeed. We're going to go out on a quick break and we'll be right back. The Nation Station 90.4 FM. And we're back and listening to Ain't Nobody Listening on Oman FM 90.4. Abdullah Al-Ma'wali here with me in the studio is His Highness Sayyid Adham Al-Sa'id. Thank you so much for joining me in this session tonight. Thank you again, Abdullah. Thank you. Well, we've been speaking for almost an hour and a half so far. We talked about Tijara Talks. We talked about uh, Vision 2040, about your company, the firm, Sharika Tasharika. Sharika. <laughs> 
And uh, I guess we're getting to the end of tonight's uh, uh, interview, but I was curious about um, this point you mentioned earlier about uh, cities being sustainable here in Oman. And it occurred to me that Dukhom has been, uh, at least aims at being that type of city that is sustainable, that they're constantly experimenting with new ideas, or they have plans in the pipeline to experiment with new ideas, whether how buildings are structured or transportation from drones and whatnot. I wonder if Dukhom Uh, could serve as a um, a testing ground for other cities to adapt or adopt the things that they think is working or not. I don't know enough about Dukum to tell you more specifically about their initiatives, but mm. I like the idea you said experimenting. Uh, if anyone has visited Dukum in the last few years, would see a fantastic sort of blueprint mm-hmm. of what we want for that particular area. And that presents great opportunities for what can be done there. And some of the key building blocks are already in place. So we're talking about the port, the dry dock, and obviously the industrial area. But it's the residential one that is up and coming with investments coming through. Mm. And some of those initiatives that you've mentioned that make it highly viable to design that place in whichever way you want. Not an architect or a design, you know, engineer in any way, but mm. what I've seen in Dukum is the potential and capacity to be creative. Yeah. And what we see around us in the region, whether it's the ET development, the sustainable development, whether it's a Dukum or whether we go to all the way to Saudi Arabia and think about Neom and the other mm. places, is all of these things are looking at a blank sheet of paper with another blue paper with a blueprint that says, listen, We're going to try and do all those sorts of things we can't do in our existing cities. Because it may be too risky, it's not proven. Yeah. Or too disruptive, right. too expensive. Yeah. Um, whatever the case might be, that opportunity, I think, is fantastic to be able to do it. It might start on a small scale and expand itself virally, mm. uh, or it just continuously needs push after push until it gets to that scale where it absorbs. I think what's critical in document and even in Yeti, is that the expectations meet the demand as well, that people want to live in those cities because they present a proposition mm-hmm. that is um, not available in our other towns or cities. But lessons learned from there. So, for example, Dukum's advantage will be, I would think, at least personally, in the energy it can generate from renewables around it because Al-Wusta region is one of Amman's best places to uh, generate renewables. Right. This links solar. with the, uh, solar and wind. Right. And this will feed into the green hydrogen as it progresses for Oman. And that will present opportunities for building around a greener. So sustainable cities, as far as I understand them, I'm sure they're more complex explanations, but sustainable cities include energy consumption, uh, recycling, circular economy, as well as creating opportunities for introducing things, as you've mentioned, of uh, drone deliveries, maybe transportation that is unconventional in many different ways. But their sustainability means that their footprint is brought down significantly compared to what we have today, which all requires designs from scratch. Mm. What are the things that work and, and what are the things that might not work? The exciting thing about these projects, I believe, is the ability, you know, the sky is the limit as long as you've got the resources 
But ultimately, people have to live in those cities. Yeah. And how to get them, how to attract them, means that you're still going to go around conventional lines of what people need. Um, sustainable cities also, you know, there's, there's a big push now in Oman under the uh, strategic uh, spatial strategy uh, for Oman, strategy al-Umrani, as it's called in Arabic, um, is to create the broader cities or the larger cities. So the larger Masqat area, the larger Nizwa area, the larger Sahara area. And those means that we're broadening the definition of our cities and interconnecting the suburbs into the center of those cities. Mm. Now, this is where those lessons learned in Dukum or Yiti could come in very handy into thinking about what does a broader or greater Masqat area mean? What's happening in Yiti? For example, Yiti is a completely sort of new project run by Amran, which is the development arm uh, under the Oman Investment Authority for tourism projects and developments, uh, urban developments, where the city is going to be designed as a completely sustainable city in terms of energy generation, uh, in terms of livability within the city, in terms of its design, architecture, and so on, to be sustainable in use of energy, in consumption, and in the, you know, the recycling of refuse, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, there also may be sort of more advanced things like capture of carbon in those places or, or trying to use technologies to capture water from air to reduce the consumption of water from natural sources. Great. I was not aware of this. It is such a beautiful yeah. place and it's so close to exactly. Moscow. Exactly. Yeah. And that that is in, in the running, in the pipeline in terms of the planning and on all of that. And that promises to be an exciting project. Mm. Now, would we all love to live in such a city? Maybe. Possibly. Right? Mm. But you With know, the right transport. Exactly. <laughs> You're talking about key elements yeah. that kind of feed into the bigger picture. Mm. Right? Yes, we could have a monorail. Mm -hmm. But then so what? Are we going to use it? How are we going to use it? How often does it take me to where I need to be? Or again, it's going to be a gimmick kind of mode of transportation. One could say, listen, let's build on what we have. Um, public transportation, hydrogen-driven buses. Right. Potentially possible. The technology is used elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Electrical grids that would support transportation. But if the transportation does not take me to where I need to be, it's still a challenge. You know, with our hot summers, I'm sure many of your <laughs> listeners would tell you, <laughs> it's not enjoyable waiting no. uh, next to the little post without any cover on your head yeah. for the bus to stop by. It's fantastic we have those buses running. They look much nicer. They have Wi-Fi. And, but there's a missing element somewhere. Yes, yeah, the air yeah. conditioning bit. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, But those are difficult solutions. How do we provide smart solutions, part mm. of sustainability, to encourage all of us to utilize this transportation? Oman is, is spread out in wadis and mountains and, and uh, plains. Those solutions need to cater for that. Right, and that's a huge challenge. It's a huge investment infrastructure. So Dukum or Yiti are going to be those, I would like to say, quote unquote, experiments that would help us learn more about how we build or integrate the sustainability in our existing cities and in new cities as well. Well, to conclude our conversation, I think I would like to end it in a positive note. Although what we've been talking about is very positive, you're an economist. I am, you know, I, I'm trying my best to understand what is happening in the economy. My perception is that we have been doing so much better, and particularly this year, no, alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah, even uh, with the, the August reports just coming out. How are we doing, really? 
And where are we heading? Oof, you asked us. The second question needs a crystal ball. But uh, <laughs> the, the first the first one is, you know, it's a backward-looking one, so I can easily answer that one. Lillahi mm. alhamd, we have come a long way since the pandemic. We've recovered from the worst of it in terms of economic activity. Most of our sectors are are back to where they used to be in 2019, if not better. Okay. Lillahi alhamd, oil prices have definitely helped, especially in the oil and gas sector. But let's be mindful that just because of high oil prices does not automatically mean economic growth mm. and newer jobs and, 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 you know, bonuses right and left. That's not, that is not the way it works. That's it what some people assume. It is an assumption. It's a nice assumption. I yeah. wish, I wish it was the case, but a, let's keep in mind that government is mindful that these windfalls today are not available the next year and the year after geopolitics and many other things are challenging us. So what the government has been smartly doing at the moment is repositioning Oman in terms of reducing its debt. Mm. The public debt is coming down to about 60% compared to GDP. We were at 80% plus. It's still a significant amount of money that Oman owes the rest of the world mm. that needs to be paid. So that has been done gradually, but it's been restructured to take advantage of the current situation. We are building buffers today, according to the last uh, report, there's about a billion riyals worth of surplus this year in the first six or seven months. Um, actually, no, it's nine months almost. These buffers, if need be, they can be used in critical situations where we have some natural disaster here or right. critical support. And that's what His Majesty has ordered several times throughout the year mm. to support specific initiatives uh, to alleviate some of the pain on certain groups because of higher prices of uh, consumer goods or whatever the case might be. But sensibility in government finances means at least it reduces the, the ups and downs of government injecting too much spending and then pulling out when it needs to. That gives us predictability. Some businesses will say there's not enough government projects and, and, and for us to continue. But that's the problem with the business model is mm. that we need the business model to change it. You create different opportunities. 50 years onwards, you should have learned better than to depend completely. I know of SMEs that have switched their model from working with 80% government, 20% private sector companies to the opposite. Wow. Yeah. Some of those private companies still work with the government. So, you know, contracts, whatever it is. But mm. that mindset, because they knew that government cannot always guarantee payment on time, although there's huge efforts today where the Ministry of Finance works through the National Tawazan Program to reduce the wait times and whatever. But the money has to be there, right? Mm -hmm. For you to be able to pay everyone. And it comes when you sell oil and gas and then collect taxes and, and fees. But that stability meant it reflected positively on Oman's ratings by the rating agencies, which generally, not specifically, but generally means that Oman can borrow at a cheaper rate compared to before. Large businesses that go to international markets or issue bonds can borrow at cheaper rates. There is a challenge that interest rates around the world are going up because of, you know, the the fears of inflation and the problems of inflation. Central banks try to slow down. You can think of it as a train. You're chucking a lot of, you know, you're, you're boosting the train. It goes too fast. It may derail la qadr Allah. Mm -hmm. You know, back in the days when you throw coal at it yeah. or, or whatever, if you throw too much in, it overheats and the steam engine what you do is you slow it down, you let it cool down a little bit. So central banks have kicked up their interest rate, makes lending more expensive. That's what's happening in the US particularly. Right. But it cascades onto us in Oman and yeah. the GCC region. 
but obviously we've capped certain rates for personal loans and certain type of loans. Mm. But it makes business lending more expensive, but relatively more expensive, more expensive, depends on the type of business you're in an industry. Sure. That can hurt the economy a little bit. That's what we see in the next year where borrowing definitely will slow down. Mm. Business investments will slow down. But the path that the Omani economy is saying, there's good momentum to say that we still see growth this year and the next, which is positive, means that businesses can retain the jobs, can uh, develop new businesses outside Oman. Overall, we've done well so far, alhamdulillah, from 21 to 22. And I believe that will, until the end of the year, inshallah. Arguably, oil prices are going to go up or down. But this time around, government's budgets Mm. will be less affected, and when I say less, as in marginally less affected, by la qadr Allah, Oil fluctuations. fluctuations that are more than expected because we're being more responsible. This has an effect on expectations, at least business expectations, where we think that they would counter that in and and and, and whatever businesses mm. they've already committed with the government, say investment spending here, government purchasing, those will have to change. You just need to be ready for those effects rather than sit there and wait right. and react after effect. This is not to say If the world goes into a full-on recession, the US, China, Europe, that's not going to slow things down. That is likely, so your business overseas might be hurt. But again, it's very difficult to predict by how much and so forth. IMF's recent visit to Oman puts positive kind of aspects Mm. forward-looking to next year. But in three months' time, the IMF will probably tell you we've revised this down or up depending on the conditions. Sure. The challenge for Omani economy today and for businesses is to just ensure to solidify their supply chains, to be able to lock in some longer term contracts if mm. possible. Um, for people working, they just need to be realistic and think, all right, I may not be able to get that raise I was hoping for because there's still a question mark about what happens in 2023, if we're still around. Yeah, um, everywhere. So, yeah, it, it's yeah. a challenge and one shouldn't take it too lightly, but I don't want to be negative about it either because the momentum of the positive, Lillahi alhamd, has been good. Yeah. Um, just have to be cautious. I, I think what you, I'm hearing exactly. you Exactly. Yeah, yeah and kind of mitigating the worst if you can. Mm-hmm. Some advice out there is sometimes crazy. It's like, oh, you should do one, two, three, four. Sometimes you don't have the buffers. Right. You can't, you know, you might want to just realign yourself. Certain commitments should not be made, for example, for especially smaller businesses that take on too many commitments. For example, you're going to open a bigger office. Think twice right. about that. You're going to hire, you know, we'd love for you to hire more people, but be mindful when you hire, whether you're going to be able to sustain that hiring, let's say for the next two years, hmm. right? That's a challenge. You know, it's unpredictable. But And it's because we live in a particularly unpredictable time in the, globally. Globally. And, and yeah. let's not so forget, Oman is part of this globe. Yeah. And we're always going to be affected by it. But some industries have done well for themselves during the pandemic and, pre, you know, post-pandemic era, era. I'd like to say post because hopefully, inshallah, we're, we were inshallah. past it. I hope so. uh, yeah. We're still a bit, you know, kind of wary of whether it's over or not, but everyone assumes it's over. Mm. But those disruptions are likely to happen in the future. We don't know when or what, but the more likely scenario is world slows down. For us as Oman, oil prices kind of stabilize around the lower value. 
This means government will have to reconsider what it can spend on and, not, and what it can't. Mm. Um, we're still struggling with the higher prices for fuels and electricity, but that's part of a bigger picture of subsidy removal and then support programs targeted for uh, people. So locally we have our challenges, but there are a lot of positives happening. Green transition is one of them, where it's creating new opportunities for those who are thinking, listen, hey, this is something I'd like to be involved with. Right. Newer projects happening, say, with neighboring countries, railway links here, investments coming through there. We need to keep that momentum going hmm. as long as we're keeping it. Smaller businesses might suffer differently, might benefit differently from doing this. But if it's too crowded in a specific area, don't go out on a limb and just start up a new burger joint. That's not going to work very well for you. Next to the other burger joint. Exactly. <laughs> so we need to be mindful that whatever we put our resources in as individuals, as businesses, small or big, mm. needs to be something different, something unique, something that is potentially more sustainable than business as usual. And, you know, alhamdulillah, I think this momentum will carry on to next year, but without stating numbers, because I think it, you know, that crystal ball never gets it right, mm. you know. Uh, IMF, World Bank, whomever tells you anything about we, look, we need to be very mindful of that. Uh, as individuals, the best we can do is just place ourselves in a place where we don't overburden ourselves financially. And, you know, our commitments are to the essentials first and then everything else. So if you're thinking of a birthday present, make sure you cut the budget for that birthday present. You know? Depends on whether I like them or not. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Nothing wrong with an e-card. <laughs> I, I think today there is something wrong with an e-card. <laughs> I would not recommend you use an e-card. Well, uh, if, you, if you enjoyed this conversation and you want to hear more conversations like this with experts who are deeply ingrained into the Omani industry, I highly, highly recommend checking out Tijara Talks. Um, whether it be at their events or the podcast that should be released this week, if not released already, that's T E J A R A H Talks, Tijara Talks, available on all social media platforms. His Highness Sayyid Dr. Edham Al Saeed, partner at the firm uh, for business and economic consulting and the moderator of Tijara Talks and assistant professor, mashallah, mashallah, all the things. Thank you so much for Thank joining you, me this Thank evening and for answering all uh, my many questions. Thank you very much. Uh, it was a great conversation and inshallah many more. Inshallah. Ain't nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening.